This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 185 of the Bugle audio newspaper for our visual world with me, Andy Zaltzman, in the sun-kissed utopia of London, the city about which Oscar Wilde said, the man who can dominate a London dinner table can dominate the world. Furniture wrestling was a big sport in those days, and Wilde was a tremendous pundit. Uh, the way he called the Jalf Brisket versus the Chesterfield Sofa title fight was a masterpiece of lyrical insight. And joining me from New York, the city described by the early 20th century American writer Christopher Morley as the nation's thyroid gland. <laughs> That's going to hurt. It's John Oliver! <laughs> Hello, Andy. Hello. Hello, Buglers. I was in Atlanta last weekend, Andy. Uh, I'd like to say a quick hello to all the Buglers who came to see me. And I'd, I'd like to say a particular hello to Richard and Jim, Andy, who brought along a box for me that said three <laughs> words on the front that have meant so much to the Bugle over the years <laughs> and have been the building blocks, indeed, of an entire nation. Those three words were Belgian waffle maker. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They brought me a Belgian waffle maker, Andy. The card read as follows. Dear John, Andy and Chris, in order of enjoying these Belgian waffles. My roommate and I just wanted to wish you the best of luck and put our support behind you guys in any way we could. Being from Florida, the only way we knew how was the ancient Florida's tradition of gifting a Belgian waffle maker. (laughs) That tradition first observed by European explorer Ponce de Leon. Legend has it that he encountered the Calusa Indians in the western portion of Florida. The Calusa presented to Mr. De Leon a primitive waffle maker and a collection of Tintin comics, which the Spaniards, in their close-minded way, took as a threat and fled. It was not until later that they realised the Indians had meant no harm. But by then it was too late, as the Calusa had been seriously offended by the Spaniards' lack of manners. This eventually led to Ponce de Leon's death, when a Calusa Indian arrow accidentally mortally wounded him. Anyway, please enjoy the waffles. Maybe you can hold a bake sale to save the bugle. Richard and Jim. <laughs> Come on, Andy. That is some high-end bullshit generosity with a side helping of bullshit reasoning behind it. Uh, Andy, you're actually coming here next week. Yeah. We'll be doing the Bugle together next Friday. I'm going to whip you up a waffle, Andy. <laughs> we'll eat like a couple of Belgians. Awesome. Have the, you tried only... Have you made any waffles yet? No, not yet. No, right. not yet, Andy. I'm yeah. waiting till you come here. Right. The only side note to this story is yeah. that when I got to the airport, the driver said, oh, what have you got in there? And I said, why, it's a waffle maker that someone from the gig had given me. And he said, have you actually checked what's in the box? (laughs) (laughs) I said, no. And he said, it isn't a knife or a gun or some heroin, is it? (laughs) And I laughed. And then I thought... Actually, I don't know. (laughs) And let me tell you, as that box went through the scanner, Andy, and I looked at the TSA agent screen, I've never wanted to see the outline of a Belgian waffle maker more. (laughs) Well, I look forward to similar uh, gifts of generosity when I land in America next week. Yeah, it's waffle o'clock, Andy. (laughs) Set your watch to waffle. Uh, on the subject of my trip to America, there's a few gigs I'm doing in uh, New York, aside from the recording for your show, John, uh, including mm-hmm. uh, Hot Tub on Monday the 11th. Uh, hang on, let me get the dates right. That's, that's, oh, that's you're so bad at this. You're so bad, Andy. There's a few gigs I'm doing in New York, if you want to come oh. along. and uh, Here comes the pitch. Here comes the pitch, man. Here we live. I'm doing Hot Tub on Monday the 12th, and a show at the Duplex uh on Thursday the 15th. 
and Greenwich Village. What time, roll up, Andy? roll up, John. Show what of the time? century. I believe the duplex one's at seven o'clock or something, or half seven. Sounds like a guess. Yeah, it is a guess. That's <laughs> I think it's actually nine. It's nine what? o'clock, it Andy. Nine? That's two hours wrong. <laughs> to be honest... Oh, hang on, I'm going to check on the internet. I'm pretty sure it said seven. Oh, you're so, so <laughs> bad at this. That's why my career is going so spectacularly, John. That's why I'm breaking into primetime TV here in Britain but on a daily basis. There are millions of people all over the world queuing up for Andy Zaltzman gigs at any one time. It's just the wrong yeah. time, the wrong yeah. place. Wrong day, wrong date. <laughs> Well, this is all staying in. This is gold. <laughs> this is broadcasting gold. <sighs> the waffles are burning while yeah. we wait. <laughs> so there you go. Seven to eight o'clock. I was right. <laughs> but uh, do check with the venue. Only by chance. Uh, yeah, Only by, by chance, chance, Andy. By chance. And I'm still, my instinct says you're still wrong. <laughs> and uh, hopefully there'll be some other gigs as well. I'll post details on the at Hello Bugler's Twitter feed. So this is uh, Bugle 195 for the week beginning Monday the 5th of March 2012. 5th of March, John, is National Tree Planting Day in Iran. Of course. Yep. And I think we all know what kind of trees they'll be planting this year, John. Nuclear trees. (laughs) And for the special March the 5th Bugle, if you are listening to this Bugle whilst travelling at five times the speed of sound, or Mark 5, it contains the codes to the Russian nuclear arsenal, which you can then use to broker a fractious and fragile peace in the Middle East. Sunday, John, is 519 years since little Chrissy Columbus returned from his uh, Caribbean cruise, the trip of a lifetime. Um, Just think, without Christopher Columbus, America wouldn't even exist. And you would be sitting in an inflatable dinghy somewhere in the middle of the Atlanto-Pacific Ocean, (laughs) hoping to catch a seagull for hoagie to nibble on. And we're recording on the 2nd of March, Friday the 2nd of March, 130 years to the day since Queen Victoria went 8 for 8 on surviving assassination attempts, a figure that she retained until 1901 when she dropped to 8 for 9 after being assassinated by natural causes at the age of 81. At the 8th assassination attempts uh, in in 1882, incidentally, all of them by men, Uh, if any of you are totting up a score for who's better out of men or women, uh, was perpetrated by the Scottish nutjob poet Roderick MacLean, who was apparently so knocked off with the Queen for sending him a curt reply uh, to a poem that he'd sent her uh, that he attempted to kill her. Uh, He really needs to lighten up, John, because I send the current Her Majesty a fat wadge of income tax every year and don't get so much as a f***ing postcard from her. Uh, McLean was found guilt, uh, not guilty, but insane, which by all accounts irritated the Queen more than the actual attempt to kill her, uh, which she must have been used to after seven previous attempts of varying degrees of ineptitude, one of which involved a chance of whacking her in the face with a stick, suggesting that her PR department hyped it up to the media as an assassination attempt, rather than what it really was, a clumsily executed snooker shot. And surviving assassination attempts has always been good news for opinion poll ratings. As come to think of it, it has not surviving assassination attempts. Why else would I have a tattoo of Julius Caesar and William McKinley respectively shooting and stabbing each other whilst in the background of Mahatma Gandhi and the Queen Mother chest bump each other all on my left buttock? Sorry, not my left one, my middle one. And as always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin. This week, making pets pay. Can gerbils play the stock market? New research shows that if you put the share price pages from that day's financial times in your rodent's cage overnight, it will shit on the ones that are going to go up in value the next day. How your goldfish could earn up to £1,000 a week as a stunt double in a mermaid film. Wherever I lay my hat... 
That's my turtle. Legal loopholes that can help you acquire rare creatures with high resale values. And pets with natural multi-purposality. Uh, cut down on unnecessary expenditure by getting a bifunctional buddy. We test out snake scarves, pelican wallets, pug hammers, polar bear chairs, do sit down carefully, and cow cycles. And also pet ransoms. We tell you the latest market values for kidnapping celebrities' pets from snails, 20p, unless the owner is French. Uh, via parrots, don't bother, to grandparents. Do they still count as pets? I don't know, anyway. But that is all in the bin this week. Top story this week, Olympics countdown! Andy, with the crisis in Syria, Iran's race to obtain a nuclear weapon and what Israel's response to that might be, it is very easy to lose sight of what's really important. (laughs) And that's that this is an Olympic year, Andy. We mustn't forget that. (laughs) The world is in pain. So why not enjoy the fact that we have a ready-made anaesthetic on its way? We can let the Olympics drift us into a methadone-like dream of bliss, only to wake up four weeks later and discover that three more countries in the Middle East have had their leaders amputated. (laughs) And I believe, Andy, that the fact that 2012 was an Olympic year is a detail that was left out of the Pope's New Year message. He should have mentioned it at the end, at least, saying, uh, with these thoughts, I offer my reflections and I appeal to everyone... Let us pool our spiritual, moral and material resources for the great goal of educating young people in justice and peace. Plus, you know, Olympic year, so uh, you can bet that that's something that Jesus is looking forward to. Okay, that's it from me, your P unit. Um, Actually, just one more thing, message to the priests. Let's take it down a couple of notches with child abuse in 2012, shall we? A full couple of notches. Happy New Year. <laughs> Who's going to kiss the Pope? <laughs> London. <laughs> Good, Andy, sorry, you were saying? What? No, no, nothing. You no, say? Nothing. nothing, you were saying nothing. No. London is hosting the Olympics, which means that you're hosting the Olympics, Andy. Yeah, that's right. So, how, how is your hosting preparations going? I know, I mean, are you going to rent out a room to an athlete? I know you've been very keen to get. Moses Kipchoge to stay with you over the years well, and think, teach your kids yeah. a thing or two about running long distances very quickly. Yeah, well, old Kipchoge, I'm not sure he's going to make the team this year, but um, I mean, it'd be love to have anyone called either Moses or Kipchoge staying in the house <laughs> in any combination. Just 147 days to go now, John. Until uh, mm, uh, very exciting. Until my house is just absolutely jam packed with triple jumpers. <laughs> And fencers and <laughs> volleyballists. And uh, the world's largest sports day um, begins in... Oh, where is it again? Ah, ah. It's that place where the German Air Force used to keep dropping exploding litter out of their aeroplane. London, <laughs> that's it. And as the athletes hone their bodies and skills with just months to go and the builders put the final touches to their architectural masterworks, the political grandstanding is gathering pace, John. And in particular here, John, the, this week... The Britain's biggest union has threatened to strike during the London Olympics and has been roundly condemned by political leaders. The uh, Unite Union has suggested that it could uh, prompt a mass walkout. It has well over a million members, so that could cause logistical mayhem, John. And I think really they should remember, this, this is the Olympics, John. This is Britain's mm-hmm. greatest opportunity to showcase itself to the planet. Hell, not just the planet, John to the universe, and we need the nation united in its efforts, and the politicians have all come out against uniting this. We need the nation completely at one in its efforts, all pulling together to pretend to the rest of the world that everything here is just... (laughs) 
fucking fine. Exactly. We have exactly. S- and we only just need 17 days, John. We need to hoodwink the world into thinking we all love each other and that everything in Britain is going swimmingly. And by swimmingly, I mean it's going up and down in a confined space before ending up back where it started, exhausted <laughs> and bedraggled and all the while moving far less efficiently than it would if it just got out and ran along the side of the pool. <laughs> 17 and- days, John. Not to have yeah. to give a shit about the stuff these people are planning to strike about. That is the whole point. That's all. 17 days. Ask. 17 days to worry about whether Usain Bolt can still run very fast. Not about whether the National Health Service is being turned into a notional yes. health service. Yes, 17 yes, days yes. to get yes. excited about, how seeing, about seeing how much of an advantage Knight of the Realm Sir Chris Hoy will get from his new knight status, <laughs> which of course enables him to knock his opponents off their bicycles with a medieval jousting pole. <laughs> our house, our rules. We don't want to worry about spiralling unemployment, falling living standards, being held to ransom by financial forces beyond the grasp of law or morality. 17 days, John, to concern ourselves with whether British horses will do neater shits than all the other horses in the dressage. Not about whether the economy is imploding like a criminal gang bundling a load of stolen folklore demons into the back of a truck. (coughs) (laughs) Imploding? Is this on? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you were just on a roll there as well, Andy. (laughs) And then you basically just dove straight out of a speeding car. Well, this self-proclaimed battle for the soul of Britain and our national way of life, John, that this strike is, is not, this strike this clearly isn't going to happen, is all about. That can surely wait until after the dressage is finished. Now, how, 17 days. How dare they threaten to keep the British public away from their beloved volleyball, from the skeet shooting that they dream of on a nightly basis. Yes. And from the BMX riding that's been part of this nation's sport-watching culture ever since the Romans rode into town in 55 BC. <laughs> I do think, Andy, cycle jousting... Is an Olympic sport that well, it's a tragedy. It hasn't already been there, and yeah. it, it, surely we can get there in time. I oh, know, Chris. You went to the Olympic velodrome for the test event. Now, I mean, you set one cyclist on one side of the track, yep. and the other on the other. Yeah, they've got all about 100, 100 meters to get up to speed. Yeah, bang. I can, bang. It's bang. Actually, in the, the very real sense, a sport in the world. Yes. It'd be even better than the Omnium. <laughs> I'll take your word it's, for that. Any, any Olympic city is bound to experience jitters as the big day arrives. So much work's gone into it, so much money's been spent. But no city in Olympic history has done a runner before the big day yet. There's never <laughs> been a group of athletes turn up to a stadium on the first day to see it completely empty with a sign on the front saying, so sorry, we're just not ready for this. It's not you, it's us. <laughs> and as you say, there is concern about this threatening strike that's not going to happen but could happen but isn't but could, and that's the frightening <laughs> thing, even though it won't happen. And Len McCluskey, the uh, leader of Unite, the biggest union in England, said, if the Olympics provide us with an opportunity, then that's exactly what we should be looking at. The attacks that are being launched on public se- sector workers at the moment are so deep and ideological that the idea that the world should arrive in London and have these wonderful Olympic Games as though everything is nice and rosy in the garden is unthinkable. No, it isn't! McCluskey, that is one of the main points of the Olympic Games. The whole point of hosting the Olympics has always been about pretending that you're a far better country than you are. (laughs) Ask Hitler. At no point before Berlin 1936 games did he say, oh, do you know what? I feel like we're papering over the cracks of what a bunch of arseholes we are. (laughs) Is anyone else worried about that? Oh, you are too. Oh, Arrest that man and take his family to a camp. You're either with me or against me. Schweinhund! <laughs> McCluskey's been accused of opportunism by politicians. Right. So, do I mean accused of or complimented admiringly for? Anyway, <laughs> opportunism is the charge. Slightly ironic, coming from a government that is pushing through massive ideological changes to public life without a direct mandate from the public to do so, but there you go. I get the impression, John, 
He's just trying to get a rise out of politicians by making these comments. And if so, he has yeasted them up like a sesame seed bloomer because they have <laughs> taken this bait. <laughs> there has been, like you say, huge criticism of this. A spokesman for Prime Minister David Cameron called the idea unacceptable and unpatriotic. And Labour has also been criticising him. Now, you see, Andy, this is why China put on such a good Olympic Games. Because <laughs> if anyone said anything against the Games of the run-up, they just threw them in jail. No <laughs> questions asked. Easy. Problem solved. And as for the problems of workers' conditions in China, no problem there at all, because they couldn't give a shit about them. <laughs> Everything was easier. Sure, we could uh, get planning permission over the next few months to build a velodrome in the area currently occupied by that huge housing estate, or plan... Do you know what? We could just bulldoze it to the ground, and if anyone's got a problem with that, we'll give them a one-way ticket to Jailsylvania. Let's, <laughs> let's go with B first, then let's do A if we need to, which we won't. Uh, in fact, Conservative co-chairman Baroness Wasi also piled in, calling the comments an appalling display of naked self-interest. And she's right, Andy, but uh, you know, in her defence, at least the self-interest is naked. Because given a choice, I actually prefer self-interest stark bollock naked. I prefer it with its balls hanging out to when self-interest is heavily clothed. What about when it's kind of sl- slightly sluttily dressed? Do you think, you know, would you prefer it? Well, I don't, yeah. Actually, that's 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 probably even worse when it's just trying to tease you, saying, yeah. "Do you wonder what's under here?" <laughs> oh, don't look, don't look, stop looking at me. Now, in in an amazing development, the British government's Olympics minister announced that the Olympics will come in under budget. Hugh Robertson said that with 150 days to go, we're on track, on time, and just under budget. To which the British people said, "Hold on, are you f***ing serious? <laughs> How did that happen?" <laughs> Yeah, you might want to do those sums again. Apparently, the entire £500 million Olympic contingency budget remains unspent. And again, Andy, this is not what the Olympics is about. <laughs> We're not doing this right. Look at Montreal. It took that city 30 years to pay off their Olympic debts. Literally three decades. The Olympics was in 1976, and they finished paying it off in 2006. That's the real Olympic spirit, Andy. A majestic financial swan dive with a high degree of fiscal difficulty getting low marks from the accountants. The the 2004 Greek Olympics cost $11 billion, double, double the original budget, which is strange because the Greeks are usually so good with money, Andy. (laughs) I just worry that we're not going into this Olympics in the right way, but there is still time to pull this around because what are we going to do with that £500 million contingency fund. We can't leave it unspent, Andy. That's not how you do... One pretty spectacularly wasteful thing we could do is put it in a giant, gigantic dish, cover it in paraffin, and use it as our Olympic flame, Andy. (laughs) The only way we could create a lasting memory of an opening ceremony to rival Muhammad Ali lighting the Olympic flame with a torch or thousands of Chinese people lifting blocks rhythmically as if their lives depended on it, which they actually did, would be for us to create an Olympic opening ceremony moment of our own. And what could be more spectacular than a British man taking the Olympic torch, turning to the crowd and saying, I can't believe we're going to do this, before (laughs) setting fire to £500 million. (laughs) I declare the London Olympic Games a financial disaster, (laughs) as is tradition. But as you say, the whole point of the Olympics is to go way over budget. It's always been this way. Look back to ancient Olympia where it began, John. The place is a mess and they still haven't finished the stadium. 
And the uh, 527 million contingency budget had been put in place to cover unexpected costs, such as, uh, for example, added security required in case uh, President Assad gets a bit overexcited and tries to invade the double gold medal winning British track her- heroine Kelly Holmes. <laughs> plus the cost of... Oh, oh my God. Plus the cost me. of installing individual viewing booths at the beach volleyball arena with two-way mirrors <laughs> for men to watch the sport through. And javelin sharpening in case of a dry summer. But under budget, John. Now, this, this, is, this is great. It's an amazing achievement to come in under budget until you realise that the budget it had come in, da- come in under was, in fact, itself four times over the original budget. So <laughs> so that's not, that's not quite as impressive as it first sounded. It's just coming in slightly less oh, over budget than we'd been expecting it to for the last five years. <sighs> so perhaps not... That's still not ideal, but that's, no. that's, I feel better about it now, well, Andy. Perhaps not something to be issuing too many press releases home about. <laughs> Now, uh, the Olympics are not without controversy because Indian government officials are discussing a boycott of the opening and the closing ceremonies in protests of the sponsorship of the stadium wrap by Dow Chemical. You see, India has a bit of beef with Dow Chemical, although they don't really like the term beef. (laughs) Well, they love it. They love the term beef. They think it's a sacred term. They just don't like it used that way. The point is that Indians believe that Dow has ongoing liabilities after the 1984 Bhopal disaster, a catastrophic chemical leak of toxic gas that killed 2,500 people immediately and has later had 25,000 deaths attributed to it. So you can perhaps see why the Indian people might be a bit miffed at seeing Dow Chemical all over the stadium that they're running around in. The Indian government has written a complaint to the IOC before, but has already had one appeal refused. And the problem is that the IOC has a $100 million sponsorship with the chemical giant Dow. So you can see their point that India should just shut up and that it was ages ago. Because $100 million will really make you feel that way. At $20 million, I'm sure that the IOC would say that the Bhopal disaster was an atrocity that should never ever be forgotten. But the problem is that $100 million, you just say, sorry, what a trusty? I never heard of that. I haven't, I, I never, I'm sure it wasn't that bad because I've never heard of it and I definitely have not heard of it. <laughs> the uh, Dow took over um, ownership of Union Carbide, who were in charge of the uh, chemical plant at the time of this disaster. And as you say, their defences are basically, uh, yeah, it was ages ago, and our feet were <laughs> off the ground, so we're immune. Um, but it is highly complex legally, John, and it's not helped by the fact that the uh, Indian legal system has not exactly been massively on top of things. Um, it's an unspeakable tragedy, and in fact the Indian legal system has largely elected not to speak about it for most of the last 27 years, other than giving compensation totalling about the value of a baguette to the sufferers. But it just goes to show, John, that the Olympic ideal can withstand absolutely anything. And by the Olympic ideal, yes. I mean big business using a priceless marketing opportunity to push its brands. That, that, that will never be <laughs> yeah. defeated, John. It yes. will never, ever be defeated. It'll live on in our hearts and in our wallets, Andy, and not in our hearts. Now, a Britain sports minister also defended the deal with Dow Chemical this week, saying the time for a protest, if any protest needed to be had, was the moment that the IOC signed up Dow in the first place. If any protest be needed? Wow. That is definitely leaving nothing on the field in terms of your opinions. And I believe that his general attitude towards India's upcoming follow-up appeal to the IOC is going to be, yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. And uh, what part of $100 million do you not understand? (laughs) There are ongoing court cases uh, uh, relating to this. And you can understand Dow uh, not wanting to 
You don't necessarily give any more of its money because it, it, when it took over Union Carbide, the, the matter was supposed to have been settled by the frankly appalling settlements that have been made before. And also, Dow's been struggling uh, recently in its uh, recent quarterly reports revenue, which was expected to be $14.19 billion for the quarter, mm-hmm. was in fact only $14.09 billion. So oh, you can see that they're oh, God, Andy, to I tighten their belts. Oh, I, didn't know, I didn't know that. Yeah. Now I feel terrible about how glib I've just been about yeah. the whole thing. So these Ugh. these these whinging victims Ugh. of one of the most appalling corporate crimes in human history Ugh. should really just wait their turn Poor until Dow. Dow have sorted their money out. Like the least they could do with is the boost of seeing their name on an Olympic stadium to get through this terrible time. Because when you make thirteen billion a year, it's, you're basically dead in a way. Yeah. <laughs> dead, you've been, like you've been in too many films, John. Germany update now, or Deutsche Update, as they would scream at each other in their gentlest tone of voice. Uh, it was a tough week for Angela Merkel last week, not just politically, and it was very tough politically, but also because she had five glasses of beer poured over her by a waiter. The waiter was leaning over her and the glasses emptied over her back. And she was pretty calm under the circumstances, Andy, certainly showing the most restraint from a German leader to provocation in the history of that overly proud nation at times. The, uh, the, certainly that waiter definitely picked the right century to have an accident like that in. The... Uh, the waiter said, I was shoved from behind and tried to catch the beers, but I was too late. I shouted shit really loudly. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I don't want to go all JFK assassination conspiracy theorist on this, Andy, but if you look at the tape, that's clearly not true. No one pushed him, and he did nothing to catch the beers. In fact, I can't believe he was acting alone in this, Andy. Some witnesses have testified that they heard some giggling behind a beery knoll. The whole thing stinks, Andy. It stinks of beer. <laughs> I reckon it was the Mexicans, John. It was definitely the Mexicans. There's no way he was operating alone. <laughs> But a couple of days later, uh, he was holding a press conference, and yep. uh, someone then just stormed, uh, stormed up to him and threw some beers <laughs> over him. <laughs> so, too shame. Merkel did handle the whole situation very well, and the waiter later said, uh, afterwards she turned around and grinned at me. Oh, shit. <laughs> that waiter is dead, Andy. <laughs> I mean, we've all subconsciously or otherwise wanted to pour five beers all over Angela Merkel. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, fair yeah. blame to him for trying it. The Germans, of course, have, have long enjoyed beer. Um, but maybe the time after this harrowing incident, they should they should reassess quite how committed they are to it. I mean, there's plenty of other things historically that they've enjoyed that they've since grown up. Oh, look, never mind. It was ages ago. Ages ago. <laughs> But, I mean, it's possible also that this guy had just read on the internet that pouring beers on a German chancellor can make it grow. It's like um, pouring Guinness on a spider plant. That's very effective. Right. right. Or, or it's like like gremlins. Yeah. Now, maybe if you pour beer on her before midnight, you, know, you balance the budget. I don't, know what the, yeah. I don't know what the system is. I poured Guinness on a spider plant once by accident, and um, it mm-hmm. lost all the colour in its leaves and started growing twice as fast. <laughs> Where's oh, my Nobel uh, Prize? Where's yeah. my Nobel Prize? Silvio Berlusconi thinks that if you throw five pints down him, she stops being an unfuckable <laughs> lard ass. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> uh, 
in other German news, or Deutsche Nachricht, as Germans would uh, whisper softly to each other. <laughs> the German... German finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble was uh, criticised on Wednesday for playing Sudoku during a crucial parliamentary debate on Greece. Uh, the German public broadcaster uh, first aired pictures uh, on Monday of a smiling man appearing to play Sudoku on his co slightly concealed computer <laughs> while a member of the centre-right coalition spoke in favour of the second Greek rescue package. Now, I mean, let's put this in context, Andy. Last week... Now, we were talking about a politician who watched pornography in Parliament, so let's not get carried away here. A numbers puzzle in comparison seems like a pretty nerdy rebellion. Yeah, f*** the system! I'm going I'm to do a number puzzle, because I don't give a shit. Right, ladies? Also, again, it shows how far we've come with Germany. If this is the worst that we can accuse their politicians of doing, we <laughs> yeah. have to accept that it's progress. Andy, it was ages ago. It was ages ago. It was ages ago. Absolutely ages ago. But is that not, you know, is this not the ideal preparation for a debate about Greece? Is that not, not what economics essentially is, a high-stakes game of Sudoku? No, it's not, because Sudoku, <laughs> Sudoku works due to logic, rules that have to be obeyed, and numbers that actually exist. <laughs> attack update now and well sad sad news about our old employer andy news international which has been a paragon of virtue and journalistic ethics up until the actions of just a few thousand bad apples <laughs> spoiled it all for the two or three good apples that work there the uh, the phone hacking scandal has claimed another victim, as James Murdoch has stepped down as executive chairman of News International, uh, the UK newspaper business that owns The Sun and The Times. Uh, James Murdoch, who coincidentally is actually related by blood to Rupert Murdoch. In fact, I believe he's actually his son, although it's got absolutely nothing to do with him <laughs> getting any of the jobs he's had in News International, said, I deeply appreciate the dedication of my many talented colleagues at News International who work tirelessly to inform the public. Ooh, I'm sorry, inform the public? Do, does James Murdoch know what the word inform means, Andy? <laughs> Someone should tell him quickly, because I'm pretty sure he'll want to quickly issue a retraction. <laughs> Demoralise the public? Certainly. Poison the public? Metaphorically. <laughs> Mislead the public? Occasionally. Make the world a slightly worse place for the public? Always, Andy. Always. That's the News International guarantee. <laughs> Do you know what? It's not as much fun doing this now that we're allowed to. It's not the same. It's, it's not. It's just. It was more fun yeah. saying this before we were fired. There's not the same <laughs> thrill anymore. In fact, I, I feel like I'm chasing the kind of adrenaline rush that we got. And I could only do that if I start insulting SoundCloud. But, you know, they, they haven't illegally tapped anyone's phones. Yes. Yet. Yet. Yet, Andy. What are you up to, SoundCloud? <laughs> Playing the long game. I'm watching you, SoundCloud. And thank you for your support. But I warn you, SoundCloud. News International supported us for years, and now they're in court. I fully expect you to lawyer up by 2015, SoundCloud. I'm watching you, SoundCloud. Is this on? <laughs> oh, maybe it was James Murdoch's own personal protest at News International ditching the bugle. He just um, I guess we'll have to let <laughs> yeah, history be the judge of that. Be. Yeah, could too be. close to it, really. And uh, in other uh, news, it turns out that um, Rebecca Brooks, the former News of the World editor, mm -hmm. um, was lent a horse <laughs> by the, the Metropolitan Police. <laughs> Now, that is not a euphemism, either. <laughs> or, nor is a horse 
an archaic term for a sum of money. Like pony. <laughs> Maybe that was it. <laughs> Maybe that was, they were giving ponies one way, horses came back the other. So, <laughs> Brooks has claimed uh, that um, subsequent investigations revealed it was not in fact a horse, but two News of the World hacks in a pantomime horse outfit. <laughs> Brooks explained we'd had Dobbin working undercover inside the Met for five years before he, he was pensioned off for swearing in the vicinity of the Queen while supposedly policing the trooping of the colour. And a police spokesman confirmed that police horses are generally released after they start audibly cussing. Uh, a spokesman said, you can tell they're getting past it when they start stroppily sighing, giving it the whole <laughs> business. <laughs> when they start saying shit or <laughs> it's just time to let them go. <laughs> a horse, yeah. horse had reached the end of its working life, John. A retired police horse, uh-huh. leading tabloid newspaper, and it said, that is a buddy movie waiting to be made. <laughs> God, it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start writing that now, Andy. Yeah, it's like uh, the film Mrs. Brown, but more so, I reckon. <laughs> the, the, uh, the Met Police Force said that there's absolutely nothing unusual uh, in it deciding to loan a horse <laughs> to Re- Rebecca Brooks. No, of course not, Andy. Of course not. There is, there's nothing unusual about you loaning someone a horse. <laughs> Especially someone that you, as you yourself say, you have no real relationship with them. That's not unusual at all, Andy. <laughs> loaning a horse to someone. There's nothing unusual about that. You just listen to the way that sounds. I, I loaned that person a horse. <laughs> Do you know them? Not really, not particularly well. But, uh, you know, they wanted a horse, so I loaned them one. <laughs> Can I borrow a horse, please? <laughs> sure. No problem. No questions asked. Oh, thank you. Uh, it turns out also that Rebecca Brooks's own phone was hacked twice a week by her colleagues at the News of the World. <laughs> Holy shit. Which is amazing, isn't it? I guess it's you know it's a test of leadership. They always say in uh, you know in sports, you know you should be prepared to do what you demand others do if you're a captain of a team. Uh, and I guess as an editor of a newspaper, you should be prepared to have done to you what you demand is done to other people. And by demand, I, of course, I mean know absolutely nothing about. <laughs> uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, last weekend launched the new Sun on Sunday, uh, a newspaper filling the hole that had been left by the defunct. News of the world in terms of something pretty shit to read on a Sunday if you've got nothing else to do. <laughs> and, um, uh, yes, he said uh, that he did praise the, the Sun for always inform, uh, uncovering stories to inform and protect the public. He sent an email to Sun staff saying this uh, inform and protect the public. I think he seems to be mixing up stories with breasts. And I don't know what he's protecting the public from, John. I imagine he's protecting them from not seeing enough breasts. And I mean, he's a hero in that regard. Uh, he also said in the email, we will obey the law. Illegal activities simply cannot and will not be tolerated at any of our publications. Our board of directors, our management team and I take these issues very seriously. And unfortunately, at the end of that, he omitted the word now. Your emails now. And this comes from Alan Greening in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates on the subject Abu Dhabi Bugler Strash UAE Law News. Dear Ahmed Jamal and Fatima, as you would be called out here in the ridiculously <laughs> building city of Abu Dhabi. As I was listening to the latest batch of Bugle podcast driving down the Sheikh Zayed Road back to Abu Dhabi after a busy morning getting hopelessly lost around the ever-changing streets of Dubai, I thought you might be interested in a few of the lesser-known laws that aren't in the travel brochures for the UAE. Flipping someone the bird is illegal. What? Yeah. Wow. Dandy, did you uh, you know that before 
You spent a little bit of time there. Well, I don't know, but it appears that Dubai has just been flipping mathematics the birds for about <laughs> the last true. 15 years. Yeah. So. yeah. In fact, the Burj Khalifa is pretty much just one long extended middle finger to the concept of sense. <laughs> if a policeman sees you flipping someone off or um, a UAE national reports you doing so, you could face two weeks in jail and a 1,000 dirham, that's around a $270 fine. Swearing in public is illegal. <laughs> Telling someone to f*** off or calling them a f***ing idiot results in a similar punishment to bird flipping. <laughs> It is technically illegal for a man and a woman who are not related or married to each other to be in the same room or car together unsupervised. An exception is made for lifts. Uh, if you find that someone has hit your car overnight and driven off, it's your fault. <laughs> Police will <laughs> fine you 350 dirhams. In the last six months, I've accrued fines of 1,050 dirhams for the crime of having someone hitting my car and driving <laughs> off. <laughs> well, well. Yeah. Uh, it is not possible to get damaged... Uh, Damaged cars fixed without a police report, but I will wait until Ramadan to pay the fines as you get fifty percent off during the holy month. There we go. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a nice. lovely gesture, isn't it? So there is there is a, there is a solid logical yeah. system in place. Anyway, must press on. The fines and bugle donations need paying for. I would say keep up the good work, but that seems inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Regards, Alan Green. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> P.S. That's a, a superb passive-aggressive insult <laughs> at the end there. P.S. If you think a £50 donation is worth it, could you please tell Irish bugler Darrow Lawler a useless f***ing cunt? Happy to. Whoa. For 50 Whoa. quid. Yikes. Well, Andy, you've got a price. <laughs> I think we all know it was a lot less than that. He did not haggle that deal down well. <laughs> There's a, there's a great email from Peter Betts who said, Dear Andy, Chris and John, in order of mo- who's most likely to be deported for inciting rebellion against the Channel Islands' long-standing relationship towards the Queen. My wife is currently five months pregnant and I've been reading some of her pregnancy books. The following advice is given. The baby is perceptive to all manner of sounds. It can hear your voice and experts believe that listening to classical music will stimulate the baby and will even remember this music once it's been born. Best done whilst falling asleep at night. Then it dawned on me that the only thing that gets me to sleep is a heavy dose of bullshit, so I listen to the bugle. (laughs) I'm now seriously concerned that my unborn child is soaking up bullshit on a daily basis. I have visions of her first words being, F*** you, Chris. (laughs) Her first drawing could even be a hottie from history. Whatever happens, the bugle can now say it's genuinely brought bullshit into this world. (laughs) Many thanks, Peter Betts. That would be phenomenal. If a child was born into the world, looked up and said, F*** you, Chris, (laughs) with a smile on his face of, I've arrived. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think I sent you a photo of Matilda when you just been born. (laughs) Yes. About ten days old. (laughs) Flipping you the bird. One of my favourite ever pictures. The first photo I ever had of Andy's child. Andy's first child. (laughs) Little hands arranged... Into a bird flipping, <laughs> looking up at the camera, thinking, You've set a tone, Daddy. <laughs> You've set a tone. Uh, do keep your emails coming in to info at thebuglepodcast.com. Uh, do follow the Twitter feed at Hello Buglers, where, as I say, we'll put up more details of my New York gigs, and I think we might put them on the website as well. How about that, Chris? What do you reckon of that? You tell me, they'll go there. All right, big horse. And um, don't forget our wonderful friends at SoundCloud, currently masterminding a large-scale phone hacking operation. (laughs) If it's not true now, it'll be true soon. (laughs) 
And just time for a quick bit of sports, and it's the uh, horse racing tips. Um, point it forward and tell it to run as fast as possible. <laughs> uh, so that's it for this week's Bugle. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with one of the very rare Bugles when we're in the same room as each other. Yeah. And yeah, let's see how that goes. As Chris pointed out, the last time we did that was in Edinburgh when um, we were both on the, I think, on the fatigued side of entertaining. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be better than you that. You were both one. a f***ing disgrace. <laughs> I expect better well, next that's week. A, All right, that's boss. a different way of painting that. <laughs> we're going to get an NBA referee in the room with you yeah, guys. Yeah, that'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Bye! Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.